Um, do you remember what we're doing these next few weeks? We're getting ready for Easter by thinking about substitution. Um, and last week it was, do you remember, one for one. This week it's one for a family. Next week, Day of Atonement, it's one for the people. And then the week after Isaiah 52, 53, it's um, one for the nations. Let's pray for God's help as we think about the Passover this morning. Peter writes, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The wind blows, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord, we thank you that your word endures forever. And so as we get to grips afresh with Exodus 12 this morning, as we think about the Passover, we are hearing from an eternal word. Help us to see what it means for us. Help us to see what it means for you and your character and teaching us what you're like. But we pray that you'd be at work this morning. Amen. 1975. April the 29th, nighttime in, in Vietnam, in Saigon. And you've got helicopter after helicopter after helicopter taking off from the roof of the U.S. Embassy. And on each helicopter, if you know your history, there are people being evacuated who had been involved in the Vietnam War. Americans and other allies, those who couldn't stay, those who had been promised safety. And yet, as the night wears on, wave after wave after wave are leaving, and people begin to worry because it's becoming increasingly clear that, well, it's going to be tight. And during the night, over 2,000 were airlifted out, but actually that meant 420 or so were left stranded at the embassy, and the helicopters dried up. And within hours then, the northern Vietnamese come down, and all those remaining in the city end up in, in camps or in coffins. Despite promises made, people were left behind. But it's interesting, isn't it? With God, it's different. He has promised that he will rescue his people from slavery in Egypt so that they might be free to worship him. And he does. And despite their doubts and their fears and their questions and despite the enormous Egyptian superpower, God comes in as victorious, taking his people from slavery. Do you remember the story? Um, it was a continuation from Genesis where we were last week. If this is all new for you, then Genesis moves into Exodus. And do you remember last week in Genesis, God promises to Abraham and Sarah that one from their family will come and bless the nations. And so we said two things, actually. This, this global blessing for this elderly couple would mean that there's to be an expansion needed as you go through the scriptures in the scope of God's activity, you get from this one couple to the entire nations, things are going to have to grow and develop, and they have. And so this week we find ourselves in Egypt, and the people have been productive, shall we say. There's, the writer uses Genesis creation-type language. The, the people of God are swarming. That's the kind of idea used. And yet, and yet they're in the wrong place. They're not in the land that God has promised them. So the numbers have mushroomed, but geographically it's all wrong. In fact, they're in Egypt and they're in pain and they're enslaved and they are crying out to him and they are, they are experiencing bitterness. But the second thing we said of last week was that we're looking for a substitution in this series. So do you remember the idea of a musical motif? 
and it repeats and it matures and it grows as you work through the, the piece of art. Well, so in the scriptures, as the pages of the Bible turn, this motif of substitution grows and develops and expands and matures, becomes more and more beautiful. And so last time, Isaac for the ram. This time, it's a lamb or a goat for a family. And why do they need a substitute? Why does each family require this lamb? How have they got to this point? Well, the Lord is going to come and he's going to judge the gods of Egypt. All of Egypt. Indeed, not just the Egyptians, but anyone there. And he's been judging them already. We sort of join the story near the end of at least this first bit. There's plague after plague after plague after plague going on, and I take it. Each plague is another god of Egypt or another aspect of creation that they believe their gods ruled over being targeted. God's not being mean or unkind in some way. They are revelatory acts showing the Egyptians, showing us that God is the God. And so he dispatches them one by one. Plague one is the Nile god, Happy, is left defeated. Plague two, the, the goddess Heket, represented by a little frog symbol, is done away with. Right through to, to sun god Ra, plague nine, dispatched. And then the Passover. The Passover is the plague on the firstborn. God's tenth and final plague, showing them, showing us who the true God is. Pharaoh would have been considered a god in their society. But he is not the god. One writer has said, the plagues are God's megaphone. I am the Lord. Look what happens if you oppose me. So let's try and understand what's going on. First point, God says to us through this account is we need a substitute. Hopefully that's on a screen somewhere. We need a substitute. I'm going to read again from verse 3 to verse 11, because for many of us this will be very new. Let me read again. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, you may take them from the sheep or the goats. You have to take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They have to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Don't eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Don't leave any of it till morning. If some of it's left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Note a couple of things. Number one is, this is stipulated. That is, it's fairly obvious. There is no room for creativity here from the people of God. These are not suggestions for how you might like to cook the lamb in your house. No, God has told you how you are to be rescued, and you must obey. You must do it the way he's told you, exactly as he's told you. I'm sure the firstborn son is kind of watching everything just to make sure it's done correctly. Can you imagine that? 
That you, yeah, there we go, okay. And it's not a popular thing for us to believe, but in a hugely individualized West where we live, where people like to say, well, well, do you know, to me, God is like this, and this is how I like to worship God. But it doesn't work, does it? And the Bible's very clear again and again and again. We don't get to make God up. We don't get to shape him into the kind of God we would like him to be. In the scriptures, we have the one true God. And indeed, we read of his one true plan to help us to be with him, to find forgiveness, to be restored to that relationship. We don't make up how we get to worship him. And you get it wrong in the Passover, and there would be dire consequences. And we get it wrong in life, and there will be dire consequences. So there's stipulations. Again, that's fairly obvious in one sense. But the next one is that there's to be a substitute. It's that word again from last time. It's that word again that we'll get week after week leading up to Easter. It's a lamb's blood or a goat or sheep which had to be smeared on the doorpost to save the family inside. It's verse 13. The the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood around the doorpost is a sign that said there has already been a death in this house. A death has already happened. And it's stipulated as to how it works. There's no ifs and buts. Again, let's think about those stipulations. I've got three C's for you. It's costly. There's stuff about how it's cooked and how it must be consumed as well. It's it's costly, verse 5. This can't be the runt This can't be the sheep that you didn't want much in the first place. Verse 5, it must be a year old male without defect. The most costly, the most precious in one sense. It's going to cost them financially. But did you spot as well it's going to cost them emotionally too? Because you take in the animal for two weeks and you care for it and it becomes part of the household. It's little lambkins. It's going to cost each family. They're going to feel something of that as a family unit. So it's costly. There's cooking as well. That's stipulated. This isn't a question of you comparing Delia with Jamie with Nigella and working for some sort of variety for how you would like to cook your meat. Now, again, there are precise instructions. Verse 8 to 9, there's bitter herbs. There's bread without yeast. There's over a fire with internal organs left in. We'll think in a bit more about that as to why that matters. And then thirdly, how it's to be consumed. None of it's to be wasted. It's just the right amount. Verse 4, if the household is too small, they must share with a neighbor. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. It's almost as if the substitute is to be sufficient for the people it's to represent. But it also means it becomes a community meal. Not just an individualized me and my God thing. This is our family, our family unit. This is neighbors. Later, Jewish historians would say somewhere between 10 and 20 people would be at a meal. People aren't left out. And perish the thought, but what happens if you ignore the commands? Verse 12. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment 
on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. God is perfectly just. And all sin must be punished. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card for Israel. No let-off for them. Which I guess then makes us ask questions. Maybe we've got questions bubbling to the surface. There's a question, what was their sin here? If this is to show the people of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, who is boss, to show who the true God is, then why are God's people in the same boat as everyone else? It's a good question. I think the best answer comes later in the Bible. Um, And you get just a glimpse or some glimpses of what went on in Egypt. So have a listen into Joshua 24. Um, Firstly, if you're scribbling down, it's Joshua 24, verse 14. It says this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors that they worshipped beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So God is rescuing his people from Egypt. And what are they doing? They are serving Egyptian gods. They are worshipping Egyptian gods. Rather than breaking the gods of Egypt, they are bowing down to them, Joshua tells us. You get more later in Ezekiel as well, Ezekiel 20, verse 5 onwards. Um, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them, I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them. Okay, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And I said, each of you get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on. And do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's striking. God's people in Egypt, but they're just blending in. They're just doing what everyone else does. They look just the same. Which then means they are in the same boat as everyone else. They too are sinful. They need to know firsthand themselves who the true God is. Which, of course, is my story. And I take it it's your story as well. We can't point the finger at them somewhere, accusing them of sin and idolatry and and worshipping the gods of the nation in which they live. No, No, we're in the same boat. We're just like them. So maybe that's your first question. It's, well, why are they in the same boat? I think the next question is probably, why does it matter that much? Why does sin matter that much to God? If he is so loving and patient and generous and kind, I I thought that's the kind of God we sing to. That's the kind of God we worship, isn't it? Why can't he just, I don't know, forget it, move on, stop going on about it? I think one helpful answer to that is that we have underestimated how big a deal our sin is and we have underestimated how good our God is. And the problem in life is that we just get desensitized to stuff. You'll know if you're a parent, the the time when you get a passenger in the car with you and they're just 
something smells a bit weird in here. And a month ago, you thought something smelt a bit weird in there, and you just kind of left it because you got used to it and you forgot about it. And you kind of dig around and you find a rotten banana sort of under the seat somewhere or something unpleasant, a nappy that you hadn't dealt with properly. And you just got used to it. You've just forgotten about it. And we get desensitized to these things. Well, so with our sin, we ask, oh, not such a big deal, is it? Does God really mind that much? I thought it's his job to forgive me. But no, we underestimate how big a deal our sin is. Because we underestimate how good our God is. He is perfectly holy and clean and just and right. He can't just forget it and move on and pretend it's not there. He must do something about it. Or else he wouldn't be holy, clean, just right. It would just be a farce, a pretense. Which means that I've got a problem. And I guess you've got a problem too. It means that we cannot bear the consequences of our sin. And so we need a substitute. Of course, a lamb is not a real substitute, is it? It doesn't really work. But it serves as a point of what is, a picture of what is necessary. What kind of substitute do we need? We need one that's perfect, without defect. We need one who is perfectly tailored to meet our needs. Just enough for, for the people of God, just enough that we eat it and are identified with it. And yet that just leaves us, leaves God open to accusations of injustice. How can a lamb pay? How can it ever be really fair for a third party to pay for my sin? That doesn't work. But no, the lamb anticipates Jesus. And as he walks onto the pages of scripture in John's gospel, do you remember what John the Baptist cries out? He points at him and he says, look, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the lamb in the Passover points us to the lamb on the pages of history, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, perfectly made man, perfectly tailored to suit our needs. Now a human being pays for human sins by human death so that you and I can be forgiven. But it's God himself paying. It's not an innocent third party. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is God himself taking the punishment we deserve. This is the judge standing as our defense. This is the prosecutor who is also our advocate. This is justice and mercy meeting in one place in the most beautiful, glorious A man dies in weakness on a cross for his people. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. When Susan was reading, did you, did you spot who the Passover is for? Who this substitute is for? Clearly it's for God's people. But actually we didn't read quite so far, so forgive me. Come to verse 38. So the substitution, the Passover meal, is for the people of God. But have a look at verse 38. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. So many left with them as they fled Egypt. 
Many traveled out of Egypt with the Israelites, or a bit further on, next page, page 70 if you're in the Burgundy Bibles. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part in like one born in the land. So you could be a part of the people of God. Isn't it striking? People being brought in to God's family as they left to head for freedom. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just looking in on things. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're not quite sure where you stand. Maybe you've got lots of questions, but you think you trust Jesus. Let me urge you, please, this morning to receive Christ, to trust him for yourself. God is not just desensitized to your sin in such a way that he can ignore it or pretend it's not there and just move on, but he can't just overlook it. He has dealt with it in Christ, in his extraordinary love for you. And he provides himself, he takes on flesh and he comes and he dies and is raised again at Easter. Justice and mercy intertwined. Receive that grace this morning. Today would be an amazing day to do that. Rejoice in him. If that's you, come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to drink coffee with you and rejoice and pray for you. So first one, then, we need a substitute. Secondly, and we'll be quicker, don't worry, we need to remember. This event in Exodus 12 is, in one sense, utterly unique. There is one exodus from Egypt. There is one Passover meal. There is one lamb slain for each group. If you're in the right place at the right time, you could put it on a map and put it in your diary. This happened once. It's unique. Indeed, it is the start of the rest of their lives. The calendar is now to be shaped around this. At the very beginning of chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. It's unique. But it's something they are to carry on doing as well. They must keep doing it, keep on remembering how they're to look back and they're to recall what happened. So you get it in verse 14 and verse 17 and verse 24. So in 14, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it. Or verse 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate it as a lasting ordinance. Or verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask, what does this mean? Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes. We are a forgetful people. We are always often looking forwards. What's coming next? What's coming next? And we forget to look back. And so God orders them to reenact the sacrifice of the lamb every year in the meal with all the particular details and, and then to explain it to the next generation. Each one reenacting it. Each one owning it for themselves. Each generation needs to remember. Each generation needs its own faith. And so year after year after year after year after year after year, they kept remembering, they kept reenacting. The sad thing is we do forget. 
You could repeat this pattern in group after group after group and church after church after church, but one example is the story of the Mennonite Brethren movement. Maybe you've heard of it. There's a particular analysis of this group, and it says the first generation believed and proclaimed the gospel and thought that there were certain sort of social entailments, ethical ways of living, morality, that kind of stuff. That's the first generation. The second one assumes the gospel and then advocates the entailment. So they, they forget why, but they still do the stuff. And then the third generation, they deny the gospel and they then deny all the entailments. Just step by step by step, we drift, we forget. And so God knows each generation must, must look back and remember. What must they remember? Well, you must imagine the conversation that springs off verse 26. They're having their annual meal, and little Caleb, he's inquisitive, he's asking his dad what's going on. We, dad, we don't normally do it that way. We don't normally roast over a fire, or we don't normally keep the inner parts, or make the bread without yeast. That's not very nice. And we don't, these bitter herbs, they are really yucky. What's, what's going on there? And at each point, there is a teaching opportunity for the family. Normal family life, lived differently, lived obediently, and doors open. And so the dad says, well, to do with being speedy, to do with being fast. The fire and the presence of the inner parts and the lack of yeast, that would have meant less set-up time and cooking time. And we had to get going quickly. Your ancestors had to run. And then not just the cooking, but their posture as well. They've got... Verse 11, cloak tucked into their belt, sandals on the feet, staff in hand, eat, eat it in haste. And the bitter herbs? Well, there was probably a speed element there too that it's not quite cooked right. Or, but also it's the bitterness of slavery. You take a bite and it, it doesn't taste brilliant, perhaps. Well, life in Egypt was unpleasant. And so year after year after year after year, they remember It's always easier to think the grass is greener. And you, look, you look back with kind of rose-tinted spectacles and you remember the good old days and the basic human tendency. And indeed, two or three chapters' time, they're looking back to Egypt and wishing they had vegetables. But the bitter herbs, the unpleasant bitter herbs remind them of the bitterness of slavery, the reality of their hardships. I'm told today that Jewish people will eat horseradish at Passover help them remember the reality of the alternative. You don't want to go back there. Now, the grass is not greener. Remember what it was like. And so the meal is to be a memorial. It, it makes those ancient events kind of personal and present with them now. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a bit. We're going to take communion, which is the Passover meal, if you like, reinstituted by Jesus before he would die on the cross. And as we take bread, we remember his body broken for us. And as we take wine, we remember his blood shed for us. We remember the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that all these little lambs, millions and millions and millions, all pointed ahead to. He is the fulfillment 
And so again, we are making the events of the cross present again for us. Why? Because we forget. Because we drift. Because we become familiar. Because we assume. And so to remember our story, to remember who we are, to remember what he's done for us, what he's like, there's so much amnesia, so much forgetfulness in us. It seems to me as we read through the scriptures, we are always to be rememberers. Those Mennonite brethren groups and probably others that you can think of, maybe your youth group as a kid, maybe churches that you've been a part of in the years gone by, or maybe even folk from Audlem Road who seem to have drifted off. We need to be constant rememberers. Has it ever struck you as strange in the New Testament, Paul writes to Christians so often, and he spends so much precious time talking about the gospel. Come on, Paul. They've got that. Let's move on. Let's build on. They've nailed that, Paul. No, no, he, forget, he knows that we forget, and we drift. And the gods of Egypt become attractive and ensnare us and hold on to our hearts. We are forgetful. And when life is hard, we easily forget it. And when life is good, we easily forget it. And gospel amnesia leads us to messes, complicated messes. How do we stop ourselves forgetting? It's one of the reasons on a Sunday morning we love to sing. We love to sing because we sing of the gospel. We sing to one another. We praise him because the messages of the world and the flesh and the devil divert us and shape us. And we, and we veer off during the week and so we come back and we sing together to remember how good God is, to remember all that he has done. That's why corporate and personal Bible reading is so valuable. And if that's kind of squeezed out of your week, then squeeze it back in. That's why as a church family, we have this responsibility to gospel one another because we are so forgetful to help us as a church family remember and enjoy and treasure the gospel afresh. And when someone, I don't know, you're having coffee later and how's your week been? Oh, I've got this meeting coming up next week and I feel a bit stressed about it. And you say, oh, should we pray about that? Let me remind you how good God is. Let me remind you of his track record. And, and that conversation isn't weird. Wouldn't it be great to be at that kind of a culture where it's just part of normal life and discipleship and we don't just talk about football or weather or, but actually we bring the gospel to bear on the reality of what's going on in life. And when life is good, we take time to give thanks to him because life is good. And when life is hard, we together cling on to the reality of light and the darkness, of the true Lamb of God in our place dying, that we might have life. So what's the Passover about? Well, we need a substitute. But then we need to remember because we so easily drift. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you that 
Thank you that in you, we find forgiveness. And only in you do we find forgiveness. Thank you that you were willing to take on flesh, to live, to die in our place. And then the Father raised you again. And you are now seated at his right hand, interceding, pleading for us. We thank you that you are the substitute that we need. We thank you for your extraordinary love for your people. People are so undeserving. People who so often get tangled up in the the gods of Egypt of today. And Lord, help us to remember. Again, we're sorry when we drift. We're sorry when we take things for granted. Help us, please, to remember and to keep remembering. And as we take bread and wine in a bit, would you feed us? Would you nourish us? And would you empower us to live a life for you? Amen.